very favourite parental verse, that one. Chapter 19, 10 there. All parents like that one. It says, do not do it. It's just what parents need. You know, it's just a verse that we need sometimes more than others. Bernard Montgomery was the son of the Bishop of Tasmania, Monty of the Africa Second World War, General Field Marshal. He was a bishop's son, uh, younger son of a very large family. And his mother used to tell his siblings, go and find Bernard and tell him to stop doing whatever it is he's doing. I think there's a certain character there, a kind of character that winds up winning major battles in war. Well, we turn to Psalm 98, Psalm 98 in our Bibles today, having read from Revelation 19, and Psalm 98 you will find on page right uh, 595, the first verse is down there. Yesterday I heard a very joyful noise of victory and exultation, excitement and pleasure. I heard it as I sat over the breakfast table with my wife and it was uh, coming out of the street although I'm sure it was around the world and echoed from street to street and town to town. Horns were blaring in the street below our apartment and the crowds were so loud that you could hear their cheers even through our closed doors as they excitedly cheered each other up and recounted the details of their triumph and their victory as if they themselves had done it. It was the sound, of course, of the supporters of the Germany-winning World Cup team as they wound their way out of the casino, which is just around the corner from where I live, uh, back in towards home. Now, you may not care because you don't like soccer, or you may not care because you supported Brazil or Argentina. Uh, You may not have cared ever since Australia was knocked out, although slightly surprised it ever got in. Uh, You may have forgotten already that yesterday was the World Cup because you're just not into that kind of thing. It's a strange phenomenon, though, humans have, isn't it? We love to make noise. We love to show our excitement to express our pleasure by making noise, making loud noise. I mean, there's nothing much more stupid than to be blasting car horns and to blast them at each other and then blast them back at each other. It really is just noise that we are making. But yet, I knew what it was about, sitting eating my breakfast. We blow horns, we sing, we shout, we bang drums in order to praise our winners and our leaders and our victors. And today's psalm is about making noise. That's what it's about. Not because of a soccer win, you'll be glad to know. And though it has a nationalistic element to it, it's not simply a national victory either. It's about making joyful noise to the Lord, to God. Not just to God, but to the Lord in capital letters, as you can see in the first verse, to Yahweh, as I'll keep calling him, because that's what's in the Hebrew text. It's a great psalm, a poem that grows with each paragraph, with each stanza, as it sings of Yahweh the Saviour, Yahweh the King, Yahweh the Judge. And it moves from past actions to the present situation to the future judgment. And as it moves through these three stanzas and phrases, 
It grows in its musical intensity and the sheer volume from human voices to voices with instruments to all the, the hills and the, and, the, and the seas and the creation itself roaring and clapping and, and singing and making noise. Firstly, it starts with the Saviour in the past. Verse 1 I read, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Throughout this section of the book of Psalms, we're being encouraged to sing the praises of Yahweh and especially to sing a new song for it is a new day. It's a new opportunity. It's a new moment in history, in the moment of our lives. It's the future that we're to be singing. But it's the song. Look at uh, Psalm 95, just back over the page again. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord, verse 1, or 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And so 98 starts the same way. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. It's part of the book of the Psalms, which is full of joy and excitement and pleasure. This time, in 98, we're to sing for marvellous things that God has done, for the actions he has taken in verse 1, that are actions that are described in human language over the page, his right hand, his holy arm. Uh, not that we're to think of him as having body parts like that, but we are to think of him as taking action in the world bringing about changes in the world, doing that which brings salvation. He's, he's not like the inactive idols who do nothing at all but just sit around, making no difference in the world, but served by humans and protected by humans and dropped on by birds. He's not inactive like that. He is the one who take action who brings about his purposes because Yahweh is alive. Yahweh is powerful. Yahweh is active and doing the things in the world that make a difference to our lives. For notice how verse 1 ends, he has worked salvation for him. We don't know which salvation we're talking of that the psalmist has in mind. I mean, the great salvation in the Old Testament is the rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt at the time of Moses. That clearly was a time of God doing marvellous things. Moses didn't get the people out. God did. The ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the incredible encounter they have with him at Mount Sinai. But there were many, so many other times when God also rescued his people, delivered his people, saved his people. Uh, the book of Judges is just a series of how God saves his people from one disaster after another. And then there was the extraordinary overthrow of the Babylonians and the return of the exiles to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. But what Yahweh has done is given the universal revelation of his salvation. Notice, firstly, it's his salvation. That's how it's described there at the end of verse 1. 
right hand, holy arm, have worked salvation for him. Not that he has been saved from anything, but that he does the saving that he wants. It's his salvation. It's not Moses, it's not the Israelites, it's Yahweh's salvation of the people. It's the nature and character of Yahweh to save, and it's his sovereignty to work salvation the way he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to, for whom he wants. So great was his work that all people have heard of it. And he's made it known by sending his prophets and preachers to his own people and beyond that to the world to tell people, to let them know that he saves people. It's one of the oddities of human history, isn't it? Here we are, very sadly, on the brink of the cusp of a possible another major war over Israel. Three, four thousand years after Moses, the promised land is still the land that is as likely to bring the whole world into a world war as any other part of the world. Why? Because of a little tribal group called the Jews. There's an old phrase, how odd of God to choose the Jews. All the other peoples of the ancient world, all the other cultures, the civilizations of the ancient world, bigger, grander, more militaristically powerful, more economically powerful than Israel ever was, they've all gone. You haven't met a Girgashite lately, have you? And Edomites are very rare to find. And Moabites you just don't come across. And, but Jews, they're in every city of the world. And... They have gone to Palestine under the British rule of the 20th century and re-established a nation that is the cause of hatred amongst more peoples than anybody else. This, This group that somehow got out of Egypt and walked across the desert and conquered Palestine over 3,000 years ago are the one group who are still around from that time to this time and the Bible says that that is what is going to happen and it says that God saves his people and his salvation will be known everywhere as it is so public is the revelation of God's salvation that he says at the end of verse 3 all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God Yet the salvation we're talking of, the God we're talking is, is the God of Israel. And the people he saved were Israel. And so the world will know that God is the saviour because the world will come to know that he saves Israel. But the revelation that we're talking of, his salvation here, is explained as Revealing his righteousness. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. For God's rescue of Israel was an expression of his righteousness. For when he rescued Israel, he was remembering his promises. He was fulfilling his commitments. He was acting out of his own character He was putting into operation the two key elements of righteousness. 
Look again the second half of verse 2. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. God's rescue of Israel was an expression of steadfast love and faithfulness, which is at the heart of God's righteousness. It was his grace, his mercy, his love. A committed grace, mercy and love. A commitment to show grace and mercy and love. And a faithfulness, a reliability, a dependability, a trustworthiness that is critical and essential. All relationships require these two things. That's what, that's what makes marriage work. That's what makes friendship work. Grace and mercy, love, generosity, you need that. And you need reliability, trustworthiness, faithfulness, dependability. Without those two, all relationships collapse. And they are of the very heart and character and nature of God himself. These are the great themes of the Bible. They're the nature of God's character as he operates in this world and it's expressed in his covenant his contract with people for his contract is to love them and have mercy upon them and make them his people and only those who are faithful and reliable are worth having a contract with people who are fancy flea people who don't keep their word people there's no point having a contract with them because they won't fulfill what they've promised. But God does. It's what marks Yahweh out off from all the other gods, all the other rulers of the ancient world, and frankly, all the rulers of the modern world, all the politicians. Yahweh is the God of righteousness in that he extends his loving mercy and grace to people who don't deserve it. And he gives his promises and his laws And he abides by what he promises, keeping his own word for generations, fulfilling his promises, being true to himself by being true to his word. Here is someone of absolute sovereign power who binds himself to his own promises to his creatures. It's a certain character that you have there for absolute monarchs tend not to give their word and if they do they're false promises and even if they're true promises they don't keep them unless it suits them but not Yahweh Yahweh gives his word he keeps his word because he is fundamentally faithful and his word is the word of grace and love and mercy to this people and he gives it and he keeps it even though they revile him and don't like him, reject him and turn their back on him again and again. Yet he saves them by his righteousness. That is, steadfast love and faithfulness. So in the next verse, we're called upon then to make a joyful noise for the, for the king in the present time. Verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre, and the sound of the melody. 
with the trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Hear. Hear the joyful noise grows in volume. See, verses 1 to 3, we're just singing. Singing a new song of our salvation, praising the God of salvation. But now it's a noise we're going for, not just singing. It's the noise of the instruments as well, the lyre and the trumpet and the horn. We're still singing. We're singing the joyous songs. That's, that's what singing is about. It's about expressing your joy. Though now it's clearly praising Yahweh. So verse 5, sing praises, sing praises to Yahweh, declaring his greatness. Because that's what praising is. It's, to, it's speaking how good he is, how wonderful he is, how marvelously he is. Advertising his marvelous works and saying, O Lord my God, how great thou art. Or singing, tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. And this, this noise, this praise, this singing is to be joyful. It's a joyful noise that we're to make in verse 5 and verse 7. That's what it was yesterday. Yesterday morning as the German supporters blew their horns and shouted in the streets their excitement, it was joy. It was pure, unadulterated joy that they were going on with. So was the song of Moses and the people beside the Red Sea. They sang, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. There they were, faced with the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army coming up behind them. The Red Sea parts, they walk through it, they get to the other side, the Egyptian army comes in, the waters come over the top and destroys the, Egypt, the Pharaoh's army. It's a good time to sing a song, isn't it? It's a good time to shout and yell, and if they had motor cars, they would have been blasting their horns as well, wouldn't they? This is the moment to rejoice and be glad for the horse and the rider. They're in the sea, and we're on the dry ground. We've been saved, we've been rescued, we've escaped, and... Are we not going to shout for joy at the God of our salvation? Israel and Christianity are religions of salvation. And not surprisingly, therefore, they're religions of song, of joyous, rowdy, exciting songs. The new songs of salvation and victory, the songs that praise God for his mighty works. Islam is not a religion of song. In fact, some forms of Islam forbid singing. The Taliban condemn it and will not allow it. And Buddhism is a, they chant. But it's not of the rowdy music of, of, of the Alleluia Chorus. It's not of the, the joys of all those 38 or whatever it is are men's at the end of the Messiah. They do not have that sense of the joy of salvation because it's a way of life it's a rule of life it's not a rescue from death and condemnation and escape and it's not just Israel that makes this joyous noise verse 4 says all the earth the world is to break into praising Yahweh for though he is the God of Israel he's the creator and God of all people 
And so all people are to praise him. The choirs of Israel are not big enough to get enough volume to sing the praises of God. The whole of humanity is to be singing his praises. And so we read before we started some of that whole of humanity singing in the book of Revelation. For the book of Revelation is punctured with these different occasions in which more and more of the 10,000 times 10,000 are singing the praises of the Lamb and the praises of the God. For the work of salvation that he has performed for Israel was a work of saving the whole world. He was saving the world through Israel. But in verses 4 to 6, all the earth is to praise Yahweh as the king. It's not about his past actions of rescuing us, his past actions of saving us, but because of his present position, the present place in the universe where to make the joyful noise before the king, the Lord, you see there at the end of verse 6. That is before the king, Yahweh. That is before Yahweh the king. For he is the king, the king of kings and the ruler of the nations who reigns from heaven ruling over the affairs of this world. And so all the people should sing with joy. Long live the king, long live the king. Like Handel's great piece of coronation music which uses uh, 1 Kings chapter 1. You know, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king and all the people rejoiced and said, God save the king, long live the king, may the king rule forever, amen, hallelujah. But the joy of a human coronation cannot compare with singing of the king of Yahweh The king Yahweh himself, for he is the king who does live forever. Long live that king, for all people can rejoice. For our king will come. And when he does come, he comes to judge in the future. The last section, verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it to the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The last stanza of the psalm raises the volume another decibel or two. Now the whole of creation itself is to join with the singers of the opening stanza and with the lyres and the trumpets and the horns of the second stanza in making noise in favour of God. The sea is to roar, the, the rivers are to clap and the hills are to sing. Everyone and everything is to join in the praises of God, to join in the joy, the rapturous praises of Yahweh. And why? Well, because he comes to judge. We sinful people, as soon as you see we comes to judge, drop the joy, move to lament. We're not too happy about this possibility. I love him to come and save me, but if he's going to come and judge, uh, uh, well, this is not a moment for happiness. But he's actually saying, no, this is the moment for happiness. For all the creation has been held in bondage ever since the time of Adam and Eve. The whole world, says Paul in Romans 8, is held in bondage to death and frustration waiting for the time when it will be redeemed and when will the time when it will be redeemed why when the Lord Jesus Christ returns 
to ransom and to rescue rather his people, to liberate his people and when he liberates his people to liberate this world from the conquest of death. So in Romans 8 we read, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We will always have ecological disasters. We will always have pollution. We will always have the problems of death in this world until this world is remade. Remade as the poetry of Isaiah puts it, where the lion lays down with the lamb, when the whole world order is of peace and harmony rather than of the blood and death that we so see. So the whole creation is looking forward to the judge coming. For when the judge comes, bringing righteousness and equity to the peoples, he will liberate the world from its condemnation to mortality. For when God comes to judge the world, he will judge in righteousness and with equity, fairness, justice are his ways, equities for all the peoples, righteousness is his call. So the psalm finishes looking forward to the coming judge. And that's always where the Old Testament looks to. It looks back to salvations that have been done, creation that has happened. It can speak of God in his present rule. It's always looking forward to something that hasn't happened. It's an unfinished book, the Old Testament. It provides the data of what's happening and what needs to happen, but it never brings the resolution, the resolution that God has brought, because God hadn't brought it by the end of the Old Testament. It doesn't come until the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the fulfillment of this psalm. For we see now the one who is saviour and king and judge. He is the saviour as his very name implies. For Joseph was told by the angel, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the, is the Hebrew word Yeshua, salvation. That's what it, in fact, it's the Hebrew word that is there in verses 1 and 2 about salvation. That's where the name means. That's who he was. That's what he came to do, to save his people, not from Babylon, not from Egypt, to save his people from their sins. And he is the king, as the title Christ implies and means. And as Pilate discovered when he challenged him, so Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate had him dressed up as a king in a purple robe and put the crown of thorns upon him and his soldiers bowed down, hail king of the Jews. And they wrote on the cross above his head in different languages, this is the king of the Jews. For he was crucified as the king. That was his coronation. And when the gospel was preached throughout the Roman Empire, he was preached as the king. 
as the Lord, as the ruler of all. So when Paul was in Thessalonica, in Macedonia or northern Greece, depending on your politics, uh, he was there preaching and the Jews handed Paul and, well, they couldn't find him, but they handed his host, Jason, over to the authorities, the Roman officials, accusing them, saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying, there is another king, Jesus. There was. There was a king who lasted longer than Caesar and there was a kingdom that lasted longer than the Roman Empire. For my kingdom is not of this world. But don't be under any confusion. He is the king in his kingdom. And this king reigns forever. And when Paul moved on from Thessalonica to Athens, he proclaimed Jesus as the judge. For there on the hill of Areopagus where he's arguing, he said at the end of his argument, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The man by whom God is going to judge the world in righteousness is the man that he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed as the Saviour, as the King, as the judge because Jesus is the Yahweh of Psalm 98 he is the saviour come into the world with the marvellous acts he saved us so that we can sing of his salvation that he won in the past when he died on the cross in our place he is the Christ the king who rose from the dead and has risen to rule the world and now sits at his father's right hand in sovereign control of all things as the universe is brought under his feet and he is the judge coming again to judge the living and the dead who will one day bring all the world into the righteous judgment of God and that's why all around the world Men and women, boys and girls, Christian people, his people, not just in Israel, but everywhere in this world, people sing and shout with joy and exultation and rapture at the knowledge that we have the winner. We have won, for our God has won for us salvation. Our God is king. And our God will judge with righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you prepared the way for him in this psalm so that we would recognize you when he came and understand the salvation that is yours that you come to bring and the kingdom that he brought as your king in this world and over this world and the judgment that his death and resurrection has put into operation. Thank you for our saviour, please. Father, bring each of us into that salvation that we might know him as our king and rejoice 
when he comes in judgment. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.